You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. My job today is to take us through 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. Um, if you've been following the series, uh, you will have heard in previous messages addressing some specific questions that clearly the church in Corinth was asking uh, Paul to answer. So is it better to get married or stay single? Is it okay for a widow to get remarried? Should an individual get a divorce if they become a Christian and their spouse doesn't believe? And so Paul's tackling all these questions. And then he comes on to this question in 1 Corinthians 8. Can Christians eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? And we may think this is the time for us to tap out. That's not something that's particularly relevant to us. I said that in the first service, and the lady came to me who works for the Food Safety Bureau, and she said almost every day she has to answer her questions about this. Almost every day. But it's the reverse. So whereas there used to be a time if people wanted meat that was prepared, say, for halal or other ways, they would have to ask, has this meat been properly prepared? But what you or I might not know is that many, many supermarkets now prepare all their meat to be acceptable for halal. And so now you've got people saying, I don't want meat that's been prepared in that way. It's sort of, you know, sort of whatever opinion you have about that. So I was, I was corrected this morning. <laughs> this is perhaps a little bit more relevant on that question than I had thought. But the point is, Paul devotes a whole chapter of Scripture to answering this question. And we know the Bible better than to think that that's not relevant to us today that there are some principles in here that are going to be absolutely entirely relevant for us today. And we're going to try and unpack that and see what it is that Paul is trying to help us understand that is relevant for the first readers of this letter and relevant for every generation since until us and beyond. So let's have a look. If you've got 1 Corinthians 8 in front of you there, I'm just going to read through it and comment a little bit as we go through and then unpack it a little bit together and see what is Paul driving at. So, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So, in short, Paul is saying, whether we know little or know a lot, it doesn't matter very much if you don't love a lot. Right. It doesn't matter how much you know, whether you feel you, you know much or you know little, he wants to know how much do you love. And this is a theme that we're going to come back to again and again. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Besides which, whatever we think we know doesn't amount to much unless we love God and are known by him. So carrying on, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom, all are, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul is dealing with this issue of knowledge. He said, well, we know um, that they're not real anyway. This uh, stuff about idols. Idols are not real. So factually speaking, if we're speaking about facts, it doesn't matter at all whether the food has been offered to idols or not. It really doesn't matter. There is only one God, the Father, one Lord, Jesus Christ. All other idols are false. 
So actually, factually, it doesn't matter if food has been offered or not. Paul is saying that's the knowledge, all right? So we have the knowledge. However, he goes on in verse 7, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, and we're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. And So Paul now starts to open up the issue of the fact that this is not just an issue of facts, it's also an issue of conscience. And conscience is a precious gift to those who are saved. Before we are saved, you know, we're dead in our sins, our consciences are obliterated, you know. When we are saved, we are, we're born again. We're given a new heart. We're given a new life. We are fresh, and we're given a fresh conscience. The law is written on our hearts, and it's, our conscience is like a little child that has to learn and grow. And, and you know, Paul is, is saying to us, look, it doesn't matter what the facts are. We need to be mindful of the people around us and understand where they are in their spiritual journey with God. And he talks about that in terms of weaker and stronger Christians. I want us to be very, very careful that we're not looking at that in terms of superior and inferior. That's not at all what Paul is trying to say here. He's just saying, no, when, someone, when a baby is born, it's weak, isn't it? Yeah, And we need to protect the baby. It's the same with Christians. When Christians are born again, they're like, they're like spiritual babies. They make a bit of mess and noise. They don't know the rules. <laughs> they don't know how to behave properly in church. And those who are stronger, we have to protect them and take care of them and create the right environment for them to learn and grow. And so Paul is saying that conscience is like a, a little sort of inner court in our hearts that is nudging us to say what is right and what is wrong. You know, it sort of resonates with us. And it's, our conscience is something we need to train and to teach it how to discern between what is right and what is wrong. And we're on different parts of that journey. Some of us have been on that journey for a long time. And so, you know, we've had a long time for us to train ourselves and train our conscience. Some have not been on that journey for a long time. And Paul describes those as weaker. Do you understand the point I'm trying to make here? It's not like, oh, you're not looking down on someone and say how weak you are. You don't go to a baby and say, Pah, baby, you're so weak. Let's have an arm wrestling match. Yeah. yeah I'm strong. You're weak. You little weakling. You don't say that to a baby. <laughs> and so we don't say it to our Christian brothers and sisters. Amen. I hope I didn't have to make that point. But, uh, but uh, anyway, <laughs> the more spiritual knowledge we know and act on, the stronger our consciences will become. Now, some Christians will have weaker consciences because they've been saved for only a short time, which is what we've just been describing. They've not had as much opportunity to grow. Um, and we need to protect them. Other Christians sometimes have weak consciences because they don't want to grow, to be honest. And it's, you know, I, I've met people who may have been Christians for many, many years, some people that have been Christians for decades, and I'm thinking, you know what, I don't think you've grown at all. You're still a child in your conscience because you've not invested in yourself. You've not pursued the word of God. 
You've not pursued the relationship with God. You've not pursued the presence of God. And although you may say to me, you've been a Christian many, many years, actually you're still a bit of a baby in the way that you're handling life and dealing with things and reacting. And that's the way it is for some people with their consciences. Some people remain weak because they're afraid of the freedom that they've been given. It's like a, you know, a child that's old enough now to go to school but is still hiding under the bed. You know, I don't want to go out. It's, it's horrible out there. You know, I feel like that most mornings, but you have to get up. <laughs> you have to get up and get on. You know? So Paul says the conscience of a weak Christian is easily defiled, wounded, and stumbled in these verses. So for this reason, the stronger Christian must defer to the weaker Christian and not do things that will harm them. This is the point that Paul is trying to unpack for us here. The, it goes on in, uh, you know, to say that really we need to be very careful that we're not actually leading uh, weaker Christians into decisions and behavior that will be devastating for them. So in verse 9, let's pick that up. It says, you know, uh, take care that this right of yours, this freedom, this knowledge does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will, it not be, will, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. I mean, Paul's putting quite a heavy weight on this. You know, I've got this freedom, I know. I'm, it's all right, we can do this, it's not a problem. But if I'm not taking care of my weaker brother or sister, I could destroy them. This is serious. And Paul reps it up even more. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ, man alive. He's really putting a lot of weight on this. You know. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Paul, that's Paul's decision of his conscience. That's not a commandment that we all must not eat meat. He's saying, well, because I don't want to let anybody stumble, my decision is I'm not going to eat meat. And he's free to make that decision in his conscience. He's entirely free to do that. But he's putting a huge amount of weight on this. You know, those of us who are free, and we think, oh, that's all right, you know. So, I mean, the most obvious example, for example, might be drinking alcohol. You know, it's okay, I can have a drink or two. It doesn't, you know, my conscience is okay with that. But you may be with a weaker brother or sister for whom that is not the case. And you don't want to help them stumble. So we just want to be careful with that. That's a, you know, a very simple, obvious illustration of that. I want to take care that I do not use my freedom to wound the conscience of another Christian brother or sister. This really matters. Okay, so we may not have faced the dilemma of what, whether we eat food offered to idols, but there are plenty of relevant examples for us today when there may be freedom for some, but for others their conscience might be offended. Not because they've been prudish, but perhaps for very understandable reasons. So here's, try and think of a few examples. Is it okay to watch TV shows or movies with swearing, violence, nudity, crude joking? Is that okay or not? You know? Where's your conscience on that? Should a believer drink alcohol or smoke? Or go to nightclubs where this behaviour is encouraged. Well, we're not making a law here. We're just saying, how do you deal with that when you know you've got other people around you for whom that might be a problem? As you, you might think it's not a problem. 
You know, should you allow your children or teenagers to play violent video games? What about gossipy soap operas, salacious reality dating shows, TOWIE, Harry Potter? You know, is it okay? Is it not okay? Where do you draw the line? You know, some people are really offended by Harry Potter. Other people, they made a life of pursuing Harry Potter almost more than they pursued Jesus. Is it okay for a believer to play the lottery or gamble? To what extent should a Christian get involved in politics? Should you, here's an interesting one I saw, should you shop at a store that allows either gender to use whichever bathroom they choose? And for some people, that's a, that's a crisis of conscience. You know what? I don't know. How should Christians view debt? Is it okay to get tattoos or piercings? Should you use birth control or not? What about end-of-life ethics? This could go on and on and on. And I'm not here to answer all those questions, largely because I don't know the answers to all those questions. But I'm here to drill into and dwell upon what is the motive behind Paul's instructions here. Okay, so a little later in 1 Corinthians he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. How do we do that? Well, the key is in verse 1. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Okay, knowledge puffs up, makes us feel superior, or can do. But love builds up. So God is about a great work among us here in Ipswich. I'm very, very excited to be part of this church. The church is growing, adding many beautiful people to us. You know, the gospel has been carried out onto the streets and to the other nations of Europe, as we've been hearing. We're looking good. We're doing great. You know, we've got exciting things happening. You know, I'm praying that our church will continue to be very successful. You know, I pray that all of Ipswich and Suffolk hear the gospel. I pray a thousand get saved. I pray the gospel is taken to the lost and the marginalised, to the broken and the alien. I pray we trade a hundred leaders and send them to the nations to plant more churches like this. I pray for these things. You know, <clears throat> if we <coughs> read through to the end of this letter from Paul to this church in Corinth, it's quite possible that for all of that Success, it could mean absolutely nothing. Paul describes Corinth as a very remarkable church. As you read through these pages, you'll read about major spiritual manifestations, speaking in tongues of angels and of men, prophecies, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith to move mountains, giving everything to the poor, even martyrdom. So we're talking about a pretty remarkable church. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, it's just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Russell's been waiting for this moment. What a great church. I love my church. It's so good. We've got a great website. And we just bought a new building. And we've got two meetings and great music. It's really great. But without love, it means nothing. It means nothing. And we gain, Paul says, without love, we are nothing. And we gain nothing. Here in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is laying the groundwork for the nitty-gritty of what it really means to love one another. Yeah? 
1 Corinthians 13 is a favourite for weddings and so on and so forth, and rightly so. It speaks loftily about protecting and believing the best and all that lovely stuff. But here, Paul is saying, right now, what about loving the one in the room here who really, really pushes your buttons? Yeah? <laughs> what about the one who really cheeses you off? The one in, actually, you wouldn't choose to be with. You, can't, you have to be with them because you go to the same church, but actually, you know... I, I try to sit at the other end of the building from them if I can. And that's just Morris I'm talking about, you know. And, uh, you know, the, the one that really takes an awful lot of effort for me to, to love them, they speak ignorantly. They, you know, I can't exercise my freedom when they're about because they're so weak, you know. They, they don't seem to have as much knowledge as me. They're holding me back. They're getting uptight about little things. I saw this quote here. The church itself is not made up of natural friends. What, what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural co-location, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ. They owe him a common allegiance. And in the light of this common allegiance, in the light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says. And he commands them to love one another. And in this light, they're a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. <laughs> well, I don't think you're quite that bad, you know. But, you know, this is, it's, it's really striking to me that when you read the New Testament writers, they come back to this again and again in their dotage. So a lot of the letters we, we have in the New Testament are written by men looking back on their life of service and ministry. They're looking back. Oh, you know, so in their youth, they may have been full of thunder and cutting off people's ears and saying, oh, let's pull down the fire of heaven on them. You know, and by the end of it, they're not speaking like that. You know, Paul, he says, you know, the only obligation you have is to love one another. That's where he finishes. You know, whoever does this has obeyed the Lord. John says no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. His love is made perfect in us. My children, our love should not be just words and talk. It must be true love. It shows itself in action. Peter, you know, above any, everything, love one another earnestly. This is where these guys all arrive at, you know. Jesus, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And we are looking to build a community of quality here. Yeah? If God gives us quantity, hurrah for that. But I'd rather have, you know, I'd rather have 50 people who really learn what it means to love one another with the love of the Lord than 500 that turn up at meetings and give their money and go home again. Yeah? Okay? So praise God that we are seeing some wonderful advance at the moment. But you need to understand that's not the way God's going to measure us. <laughs> He's going to measure us by these issues. Have we learned what it means to love one another? Yeah? And not just tell everybody, tell the whole Ipswich, this is how you should do church. We know best. You know, we're successful. Bang, bang, bang. Horrible sounds. No, we're here to love, to serve. So, what hints and tips does Paul give us of what it means to love one another deeply from the heart? So, first is, I think if we are to love one another, in the way that Paul is describing here, we need to know one another. You've got to know your brother or sister. How will I know that I'm offending your conscience if I don't know you? 
Yeah? Now, some people are very quick to tell you <laughs> you're offending their conscience. Okay? Praise God. But a lot of other people, you know, they're thinking, ooh, you know, they're recoiling. Ouch. You know, you've, oof, I'm wounded here. Well, if I've taken the time to get to know that person and know something of their history, know what they've been through, then I will learn how to be careful with his conscience. Yeah? And you can't do that unless you engage people and really get to know them. So we're encouraging you folks, please come to our meetings, please enjoy our ministry, please enjoy our worship and our ranting from the pulpit. But actually, what we want to see is you learning what it means to love one another. We want this to be the most loving church ever. Yeah? Vision. Hope Church Ipswich. Most loving church ever. What does that look like? I want you to be the most loving person you could possibly be. How loving do you feel today? <laughs> How do we measure that, you know? I'm feeling 70% loving today. <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't, uh, don't ask my wife how loving I am. <laughs> or if I've had a good day, do ask my wife how I am. You know, I want you to be brimming with love. Brimming with love every day. Atmosphere changes when you come in the room. You know, that's what, that's what we're trying to do. We're raising up disciples because God is defined by love. God is love. God is motivated by love. He so loved the world that he sent his only son. Yeah? And we want to raise one another up as disciples like Jesus, don't we? And So I want to learn how to be the most loving person I can be and I want to help you become the most loving person you can be as well. And this is what Paul is saying. We're looking for how we can love one another. We need to get to know one another. We need to understand their journey, associate with people different from ourselves, learn to love people. How? Well, say it. Say it. Number one, I love you. Say it. Yeah, words are powerful. They create things. They, they change things. They warm us up. Yeah? Be quick to say these things. So I've, you know, I've got children in various stages of development. Some of them don't say anything to me, <laughs> you know, at various seasons. I always tell them what I think of them, you know. Well, I won't tell you everything I tell them, but, you know. <laughs> every day, every morning, every night, I love you. Look at my eyes. I love you. All right. Write it. Write it. They'll write to you. It's amazing. In the social media age, we, we can be a bit down on that in, uh, from the pulpit. But what an opportunity. So many different ways to send a quick note to tell someone that you appreciate them and love them. Yeah? So many ways we can do that. Show people that you love them. Show them. Demonstrate it. Acts of service. Acts of love. You can only know that if you know people. You know what they're going through. You know their circumstances. You know how you can serve them and love them and bless them. Friend of ours in Frankfurt planted a church there. His wife broke her ankle. She's out of action for two months. Huge pressure on them. He's got a full full time working job. He's got three young boys, and he's trying to leave this church plant. Well, then one of our other churches, north of Hamburg. I mean, we're talking over six hours drive away. It's like someone from north of Manchester jumping in a car to drive down to say, "Well, we'll take uh, the pressure off you on a Sunday morning. We'll do all the service for you." 
so that you don't have to worry about that. You know, and I'm thinking, well, that's, that's love in action, isn't it? You know, we see your circumstances, we're there, we're going to help you out. A bit of affection. You know, the Bible talking about this. This is part of the problem for us with the word love in English is a bit of a, a corrupted word. It's a, mi- a misused word. It can be misapplied, you know, a bit hippie. Ooh, I love you, man. You know, but the Bible, this is very, this is the substance of God we're talking about when we talk about love. And we're learning how to love one another. And there are appropriate ways that we can demonstrate that through affection. You know, greet each other with a holy kiss. All right, now we have to find out what the boundaries are. The Bible also says, you know, treat, you know, you approach one another with absolute purity, like your own brother or sister. You know, so, you know, there are some boundaries of responsibility, but touch and affection are precious. I remember a friend of mine had been to an old people's home and had been spending some time with some, uh, some, and he went, and as he was leaving, he went and he, he gave this old lady a little kiss on the cheek, a little kiss on the cheek, and she said, "Do you do that again?" Is it, you know, like a son to a mother. She said, I've, I've not been kissed for 20 years, she said. Made a day. Ooh. It's okay to show appropriate affection as we show our love to one another. But words and what we write and how we serve one another, these things, you can do that when you know each other. Secondly, quickly, uh, don't think more of yourself. You know, the, the, these guys were puffing themselves up with their knowledge. We know this. Well, we've got to be very careful. Come on. That's not the, the goal. That's not our goal. Our goal isn't to be the one who knows the most. Our goal is to be the one that loves the most. Okay? And so sometimes people come to us as elders and leaders and say, we should do this or we should teach that and why don't we this that, and the other. And, and we welcome that. We invite that. Okay? Please. We want all of your input on things. But we then have to evaluate that. Sometimes we say, well, that's not our priority at the moment. Sometimes we might say, well, that's not in line with our apostolic emphasis or whatever. And sometimes we look at you and think, what's motivating you here? They say, are you, are you motivated by love or by knowledge? You know? And that's an evaluation we make. So, uh, you know, not to correct anybody, but just say, we want to do this for the right reasons, folks. Okay? So let's not... You know, be aware of our own words and actions, not abuse our freedom. Don't let our knowledge obscure love. And for those of us who are weaker, well then, we need to gain knowledge. We need to grow, as Paul is saying here. You need to learn and grow so that you won't be weak and easily offended and like the people that have been Christians for years and years but have never grown. And you grow by investing in yourself through the word of God. You grow by encountering the power of God and the love of God for yourself. Okay, and this is where I want to land with this, really. I want us to learn and grow to become an ever more loving community. I want you to be an ever more loving person. Yeah? And it comes from knowing that we are loved, Jesus on the cross, because of his love and obedience. When we were very unlovely and unlovable, he died for us that we could be reconciled to our Father who loves us. But we had made unapproachable by our sin. He's a holy God we were hearing earlier. Well, he's made a way for us by paying for our sin through the death and resurrection of his Son. We're going to remember that when we have this bread and wine in just a moment or two. We're going to remember that. But we need God's help to love one another. It says this in Ephesians 3, just as I come to a close here. He says this, I pray... 
out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And Paul is saying, that, hey, we need the power of God to understand, to in any way grasp the love of God. It goes, but it's not just about our knowledge. His power enables us to encounter his love in a way that goes beyond our knowledge. Do you know what I mean by that? Have you, have you encountered the love of God? You might be sat there today thinking, I'm not very, I'm not very lovable and I'm not feeling very loving. <laughs> well, we love because we have first been loved. And when you encounter the love of God, that goes beyond anything that you could know, it secures you and roots you and anchors you as a person and allows you to love those around you that you would find hard otherwise to love, or to love anybody, to be honest. We can only love because we've first been loved. So I want to encourage you. We're going to break bread in a moment together as we worship God. And I want you to give thanks to God for his love. And I want you to ask him to fill you again with his love beyond measure that goes beyond your understanding that causes you to rise up and say, Abba Father, as we were hearing earlier, deep calls to deep, I'm loved with an everlasting love. Let him fill you and flood you again, that you may then be able to love those around you. Maybe there are some people in your life, maybe there's a broken relationship. Maybe there's someone that could be even in this room or someone in your family or someone in your history where something is broken. You say, you know what, I hope I never see that person again. I hope I never see them again. Well, do you know what? God can flood you with love that you're able to repair that damage in your life. You're able to do that. Okay? His love is able to do that. It could be that you feel, you know, the the sense in which you're just not able to reach out to those around us who are lost. Yeah? You think, well, you know, I I can't, I, I have not got the inner resources to reach out to these people around me, these broken people. Well, believe you me, if you encounter the love of God, you won't be able to help yourself, okay? It will overflow. It will overflow. So if you're thinking, I want to I love the lost, but I don't know how to do this, well, get closer to the love of God, and it will, you'll, you'll be able to prevent yourself from reaching out to those around you who are lost. The unlovely among us here, <laughs> me included, you know? That to you, you think, I just don't know how I can ever build a relationship with that person. You know what? You can. Because when you are able to receive the love of God and be filled to the measure of the fullness of God, you are able then to reach out to those around you with the love of God. Let's uh, just, if you feel able to, just lift our hands out to uh, heaven in in a, uh, a posture of receiving from God. They're saying, God, we want to receive from you.
not because of anything that we have merited, but because Jesus has made a way for us to access the throne. We can come very boldly to you. Say thank you for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus that has atoned for our sins. Thank you that you have torn the curtain and made a way for us to come into your presence, Lord Jesus. Lord God, we, uh, we want to be the most loving church we can be. We want to learn what that means. Lord, with my stumbling words, I'm trying to paint a picture of what it will mean, Lord. Well, by your Spirit, fill our hearts and we will know beyond understanding what it means to exist in the empowering presence of a loving Father. So we invite you now, Holy Spirit, come and flood our hearts. Lord, this is not just about our, our willpower, it's about your power in us. Jesus Christ, you died and rose again that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, come and fill us. We don't want this to just be talk. We don't want this just to be good works. We want this to be some, a fire burning in us, streams of living water welling up within us, that we look around us and we cannot help ourselves but to reach out to others around us in love, to bear with one another, to be mindful of those of weaker conscience, to not be looking to puff ourselves up but be looking to humble ourselves, serve one another, love one another. Lord, that when people come in this room, they just overwhelmed by the atmosphere of the Father, the presence of God in all His love and all His glory. Lord, when we're in Your presence, it's unmissable. We can't mistake it. So I want to pray, Lord Jesus, You flood every heart here. We're all wounded hearts, Lord God. Will You come and flood every one of us with Your love? Lord, will You take us beyond what we know, what we know of ourselves? the limits we place on ourselves. Oh, well, I'll never be that. I'm always like this. No, we, wanna, we don't want to live by knowledge in that way. We want to live by every ounce of your affirmation, Lord God, revealed to us in the Word of God, demonstrated to us by the power of God. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters today. Will you touch them with your love? Will you reassure? Will you reaffirm? Will you build us up, Lord, in your love? that we can build one another up with our own love that has been received from heaven. Lord, will you, will you mend wounded hearts? Lord, will you give faith for people to reach out where there are broken relationships? Lord, will you overwhelm our self-criticism that we would say, no, I am beloved of heaven. I am beloved by the King. I am loved by God. So I can reach out. I've got something to give. And Lord, help us to give freely and abundantly and to engage and to love one another. And people will say they're just like Jesus. Look at them. People will know we're disciples. We know we belong to Jesus because of the way we love one another. Ipswich will know. Look at the way they love one another. Why do they do that? It's because of the love they've received from Jesus. Lord God, fill us and flood us. So we're going to worship now as we worship for leave your seats go take some bread and wine you might want to pray with your neighbor uh, take the bread and wine and remember the love of God poured out to us through the, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus and God's faithfulness to him in raising him from the dead that we might be raised together with him thank you for listening
listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.